from Hong Kong. This is Mea Kupa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast, based on the Postmodern Conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. Today we have Stefan Forde, managing partner at Fresco Capital, an early stage VC investor. He was also a board member of the Scrum Alliance, chief strategy officer at Telerik, and CTO at Saget Survey, and many other ventures. He started his career as developer. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, thank you. Steve, can you tell really quickly, how did you get involved in startups as a developer? Well, it was during the dot-com era. So this is a long time ago, uh, 25 years ago. And it, it's, it's actually kind of funny. I was working at Fidelity Investments. I guess the statute of limitations has um, been lifted and I can actually talk about that. And um, you know, this was like literally 1994, 1995. I was a beta tester of Windows. 95 and they would not upgrade to windows 95 when the when it was released and i said well i'm going to go out and start my own company and do windows 95 development uh, or, or in reality i was i was trying to do 32-bit development over 16-bit development for all you people keeping track out there and i thought that the only way to go do that was to start my own company so it maybe wasn't the best of reasons um someone also told me if you do your own company you can buy equipment and deduct it on the taxes so um i can't say you know like i was born and felt like this was my path but that's you know that's the honest answer of how i got down the path uh but never looked back to be completely honest and that was about 25 years ago okay then it was more at that point the spur of the moment but i guess that's correctly or I mean, I thought about it. Um, I, I actually did freelance work for about a year uh, until I got into it. It was, um, you know, as again, that was about like 1995, then into like 1996, did some freelance work. It was really more, um, you know, my first kind of startup venture was with another partner who was in a similar position and as I was, and, and just, but he had some interesting ideas around real estate and we thought we could work in the real estate area. And we built some software, you know, for some folks that were doing a startup. And that's when we kind of got the bug. Okay. And was it a decision that you made in the sense of, hey, I'm going to prepare myself. I I now have an X amount of runway of personal savings. And then I go and do that. Or was the freelance work already yeah, paying for rent and that kind of stuff immediately from the, from the get-go? Well, when I quit my, you know, for the time, well-paying Wall Street job, for a um for the freelance work it there was really no thought about that because i was kind of trading one for one i mean here in the united states we have health insurance is tied to your employment so i just had to make sure i made a little more in the freelance work than what my take-home salary was to cover private insurance um other than that and i think i was young in 22 i might have even you know skipped a few months of not even having it um so there's no real decision when i quit the first job because it was it was just like okay i'm pretty sure i can go out and get enough customers to go and make my same salary and um when i jumped into the startup that was obviously a little more scary because the um I wasn't, I made the decision not to do the freelance work. I figured if I'm going to do the startup, I have to be all in during the startup. And um, I, I did think through to some degree what the runway would be, but I, you know, I was also, it was also like young and maybe not as calculated as I am today and probably had less of the liabilities. I was only a year or two removed from university. So I always figured I could, as much as I didn't want to, I figured, well, if I fail at this, I could go back to my old job at Wall Street or I could, if I really fail, I could go live with my mom and dad, you know, that's, that's not really that big of a deal when you're 22. And then maybe when 
40 or 50, right? Um, so yeah, I, I can't say I put much thought into it, to be honest. We were all young at one point. That startup, what was it doing and where did it go and, or where didn't it go? What was the idea? Uh, well, that, that startup was, um, if, if you're old enough to remember, there were these things called compact PCs and there was another thing called Palm Pilots. And at the time, I think it was, oh, I can't remember exactly the um, the name. There was the visor, HTC visor, I think it was called, which was the Palm Pilot that allowed you to be extensible and programmable. It was basically founded by the co-founder of Comback or, or whoever ran Palm Pilot, Palm at the time. Um, if, for those of you following along and have no idea what I'm talking about because you weren't even born at this time, picture today all the like the sexiness around the iPhone and that was the Palm, right? The Palm 5 was like the iPhone 10, right? Like everyone had it, everyone wanted it, everyone talked about it. Um, so the idea was to build these tools and services for the Palm 5. And, and ironically, the most successful one that we sold was one that just moved um, in 1998, this product called Microsoft Outlook was all the rage uh, came out, <laughs> ironically still around today. And um, everyone started storing their contacts in Outlook, but Palm had its own proprietary um, own proprietary address book. So we wrote an interface and we sourced from a third party uh, component um, that was basically a serial port at the time, which allowed us to um, synchronize between the two. And, you know, this isn't really a great startup. I mean, we were just selling these things for like $50, $100, but then people would hire us to do all this consulting work to build these custom apps, either for the Palm or the Compact PC or some type of integration work. So just on one level, the startup was successful, um, but the negative was, was that, you know, the idea of the product that we were selling sold well, um, but we never really took venture money or we never scaled it. And then, you know, people would buy it. And then, you know, we kind of got sucked into doing all, what, what would today a VC would call NRE, right? The non-recurring engineering. Uh, we got sucked into that. That was like 80% of our revenue, right? So to some degree, we were only like, we were an entrepreneurial developer shop that's specialized on a hot uh, market, right? So that was probably like from like 97, 98 to like around 98 to like maybe early 99, mid 99. And then... Uh... The year 2000 comes up. Was it around the time that you went work with Zaget or? Yeah, so Zaget was actually a customer of ours. Um, so at the time they were like a 10 or 12, uh, maybe a little bit bigger than that, maybe a 15 person uh, book publishing company. And um, they, long, long story about the Palm, but like we, we, they were a customer of ours. And, and I actually think we, the intro to Zagat started with our Palm integration work. I mean, that we started doing a lot more tech work with them. And they, were, they had one tech dude, this guy named Sal, who was really awesome. And we actually did a lot of work with them probably starting in 98. So around 99, in the middle of 99, it was, it was actually, I remember it distinctly because it was out here in San Francisco, even though my partner and I were based in New York. We attended a real estate conference because real estate agents were buying our Palm device, um, you know, just like like gangbusters because there was no solution for them in, in urban environments. They needed to go and synchronize all their their contacts and do all this stuff, their calendar too. So we attended this real estate conference in in Silicon Valley in in like um, July of '99, and that was when we decided that we were gonna. And we met all these like people that we thought were you know, maybe only slightly smarter than us, but yet raised all this venture capital or do all these great things. I'm like, why are we bootstrapping? And why are we so 
focused on this non-recurring, you know, engineering work, right? Like, you know, we can just hire a team and outsource that and we can go out and build, like we really got motivated. So we came back and we fired all of our customers. So we went to every single one of our customers and all the, all the NRE in our business, right? And we, and we started firing them. And Zagat was the last one. And, and partly it was just luck of the draw. It wasn't because they were, I joke with them. It wasn't because they were Z in the alphabet. Um, and, and the, 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 the guy who was in charge, a guy named Tim Zagat, um, you know, said, well, what's wrong? We pay our bills. <laughs> you know, why are you firing us? You know, we were firing customers. That's a little weird, right? And, and we said, oh, no, we're just going to go in and do this new venture. And they said, what is your new venture going to be? We said, we're not sure. You know, just something with mobile, right? You know, so I, I can joke that I was early to the mobile game, um, you know, 20 years early or 10 years early, whatever it is, right? And, um, and then he said, well, we're looking at doing a spin out. And, um, you know, we can't afford to lose you guys. And I said, well, sorry, I have friends I can recommend you, you know, like to keep it up. And he goes, no, no, we have big ideas with mobile too. Um, and I said, oh no, it can't be bigger than what we're doing. And he goes, ever hear of the iMode phone? And again, for those of you not old enough, you might want to Google iMode. Um, it was the iPhone of 2000, but no one can get it because it's only available in Japan on NTD Docomo. It was the sexiest phone on the planet. And I go, I, did you, I said, did you say iMode? And he goes, yes. And he goes, we're going to build an app for the iMode and we want to do a spin out and have a big technology play and have a website and a .com and go get venture capital. And I'm like, oh, that might be cool. And then what Robert, my co-founder and I are thinking of doing. <laughs> Like, oh, that sounds fun. I knew nothing about restaurant book publishing, but I said, I, and I said, I said, I know nothing about restaurant book publishing and I really have no interest in that. And he goes, don't worry, there can be two separate companies. There's going to be the dot com and the, um, you know, and then, and then the other side of the business. And I said, okay, cool, sign me up. I had no idea what I was signing up for. Um, and then he introduced me to my co founders. <laughs> Of, of this spinoff, um, a guy named Peter, a woman named Carolyn, and I forget there was another woman named Gail and two or three other people, um, all young and probably, actually, we were youngest. There was a couple of people a little older and kind of doing it. Um, and they said, okay, go out and raise venture capital. I'm like, what's venture capital? <laughs> I went to this one conference in Silicon Valley. I'm all of like 26 years old, uh, whatever it was, 27 maybe. And um, we went out and did it. So that was kind of like engineered, that startup team, the co-founders, it was engineered by uh, Mrs. Aguet. That's a good way of putting it. On this vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you said, you didn't know what you're getting into? No idea. Uh, <laughs> quickly, where did you get into and what was the biggest challenge there on hindsight, of course? Well, um, one thing on the not knowing what you're getting yourself into, I guess like the ignorance is bliss because I guess if you're presented with all of the things that you would know later, you might not go do it. Um, and then before I answer your question more directly is, I also think, because you asked more than once now, like, did I plan about the runway and things like this? Um, I always thought with any of them, like, okay, if it's a startup in six months or a year, if it fails, it fails, like no big deal. Like I know like, I'm in New York at the time is the booming of the nineties and everyone was concerned about their resume. My sister, who's three years older than me, was very successful in, in her job. And, and she would always say like, you don't want these gaps on your resume and this, that, the other thing. And I would just, I just didn't care. I just thought it didn't matter, right? And I, I guess I was lucky in, that it didn't. Um, but back to the challenges is, I guess the first challenge was um, raising venture capital for a business that didn't necessarily look like it was venture scalable, right? So, so packaging a 
traditional kind of you know book publishing brick and mortar company and changing the business model right so the raising the venture capital part wasn't that hard like i mean it took us a couple months so we raised 36 million dollars um it was you know in today's dollars that's like a hundred million dollar round um, to give you perspective is the um our lead and that round was so big um it made the papers and um it was a series a and you know now 36 million dollars series a i guess is like you know a tuesday um but the fund that invested in it was a billion dollar fund. Um, and it was the first billion dollar fund. It was so big of a venture fund that it needed a special insurance policy from AIG. So times have changed <laughs> um, in um, 20 years. But also just to break in 36 million at that point, in that time, you still from the 36 million, probably you had to spend 50%, maybe even 70% on IT infrastructure, right? You have to like buy your own servers, you have to buy your own Windows server license, that kind of stuff. Yeah, you, you, you've paid attention to um, some of the talks I've given in Hong Kong. I forget the number I'm going to say. So, so remember, we're trading off the um, reputation and intellectual property of the, of the sister company, which, you know, Zagat, the book publishing company, right? So we had a perpetual, we had an in perpetuity license for like a dollar to get all the content. So that part was easy to go convince, you know, the, you know, the venture capitalists to go do it, but we still had to kind of go from idea to paying customer. And, um, because we were building all these new business models and that was, that goes back to the, the big challenges you said, right? Like you asked a moment ago, like, so those big challenges were how do we build a new business model for an old school business that was founded in the seventies, right? And then bring it into the literally now, now at this point it was, I think February, 2000, by the time we started really getting rolling. Yeah. We had to spend, Ooh, say somewhere between 15 and 20 million. I have this written down somewhere because I've done presentations on it, comparing the cost of getting from idea to your first paying customer, um, you know, over the course of the years. And it definitely was a lot. And now one of the mistakes we've made was we probably did a lot of premature scaling because we trade, because two reasons, well, three reasons. One, of course, being inexperience of the team. We all were in our twenties and never did a startup before. Um, second was we were trading off the brand. So we just felt like we were had to scale because everyone was doing it right. Like, you know, pets.com and you know, you know, the, you know, the story, go read the history books. Like everyone was in hyperscale mode. So we were figured, so should we. Um, but then third, more importantly is there was this pressure by the investors, by the market, by the media, by everything to also do that kind of hyperscale, you know, even though we didn't really have product market fit yet. Um, so while I say we spent, you know, 15 to 20 to kind of get, you know, from zero to a couple million of revenue type of a thing, we probably could have done it for half of that because we didn't need 30 salespeople. We could have probably used five and did it more incrementally, right? We didn't need is, you know, granted, we, we, we actually didn't spend a tremendous amount on servers. That's a whole different conversation for a more technical podcast. But we used um, the, the temptation at the time was just to buy a big Oracle box with a tuxedo middleware, you know, spend about $4 million on a big behemoth system. We strung it together with um, a server farm with, with cheap Dell, you know, pizza box kind of servers. And we just did the N plus one model. Uh, and that cost us maybe 100K, right? You know, so ironically, the tech was the cheapest part, but we, we prematurely scaled the business, which had some dire consequences, right? You know, because a year later when the revenue didn't catch up, we couldn't justify like 13 people in business development and 30 people in sales and had to let half those people go because it still was a good business. I mean, we, we made money and eventually sold the business to Google, but we probably could have done better for ourselves if we didn't prematurely scale it. Okay. So now you're 
warning everybody not to premature scale as an advisor mm-hmm. to a lot of uh, other companies. So that would be probably your biggest takeaway from that venture or something else too? Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot of takeaways, but yes, that was that would have been my first experience of um, throwing a lot of um, resources at a problem before you necessarily had your business model figured out. So even though we were you know, even though it wasn't that hard, like there were content licensing deals, like we kind of knew what we were doing. We had intellectual property that people wanted and we just had to figure out the right business model to sell it. So it wasn't like we were building something super brand new that, right? But at the same time, we just got caught up in that premature scaling. So I would say, yes, that's that's probably, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of other things I learned partly because of my age and being the first startup, like team dynamics and just things about market running board, like, you know, working with venture capitalists, working, there are a lot of learnings I probably got like three equivalent MBAs in the three years there. But at the same time, um, I'd say the premature scaling was definitely the biggest. Okay. And you said already, you sold that to Google. Mm -hmm. How did that start it? Like Google at one point just knocked on the door of your (laughs) office or how did that been through well that's a we don't have the time to go through that entire um you know uh that entire thing um let me think a a better a, a better way of putting it was at some point we merged the two companies back together right uh the spin outs now you might think like why would you do the spin out in the first place in the old school days in the dot com era um sure we we had tons of these um spin outs, right? Um, you know, everyone did it. So we just kind of followed the norm that way. So we were a survivor. A lot of those spin outs just died. Um, so we combined back to the book publishing company, which then from a revenue perspective was great, but then for the gross margins, not as great. Um, so I think, you know, after about a number of years in the VCs start getting a little antsy and we had to take a little more money and things like that. So it became obvious that selling the company was the best option because that IPO boom in 2000 and 2001, especially after 9-11 just kind of evaporated. So in order to get liquidity for all the stock options and all the shareholders, uh, an acquisition was something strategically um, more viable. And then, of course, you know, the, the founders of the parent company, Tim and Nina Zagat, were in their 70s. So, you know, we also had to figure out what their goals were and, you know, their, their thing. So, you know, acquisition became an idea. So we actually hired an investment banker to um, look into the idea of selling the company. Um, again, uh, some of it's probably still confidential, so I should probably tread a little lightly, but needless to say, that didn't work out too well. Like, <laughs> that was expensive. So I wouldn't recommend that to other companies. Um, yeah, and then because of that, once you're, and this is something that folks will learn is, is you know, having been through the M&A process a few times um, after that uh, as a founder, um, Typically, your buyer is either a partner or if you've already had an offer, other people in the similar domain get wind of that, right? And then because people talk <laughs> and then that's where the buyer might come from, right? You know, so that that's sort of what happened. Um, and, and to give you the context, this was during the war of Yelp, right? So everything was local, right? You know, like every few years we go through these paradigms, right? So like that was the, the local paradigm, like, yes, we must, you know, Luke, we must destroy Yelp. And, you know, Zagat gives us all this local content. So we were a perfect, you know, round peg for a round hole for them. Okay. So basically what you're saying is that for acquisition or something else like that, it's about networking. It's about knowing people, or is it also about yeah, being out there, being yeah able to present yourself or what also in later stages, how do you see indeed company being acquired? Is it 
especially when it comes to companies that aren't the Instagram companies that are have a good consumer-facing brand, more the companies that aren't that well-known in the B2C market. Also from later on, how do you see that usually start out in the M&A or acquisition phase? Well, um, I would start with the caveat that as a founder, you should never really be thinking about the M&A. Right. Um, in my last venture, um, it's probably about six or seven or seven or eight years ago, my CFO said to me, if um, you build a sustainable business and something that's interesting, you know, that all takes care of itself, whether it's the path to an IPO, whether it, whether it's a, um, you know, an acquisition at a, at a nice multiple that makes everyone happy. So he goes, you as a founder, your job is to figure out building the best business you can. And it has to be a sustainable business. Um, so that, that's the caveat that you, and if you also start the company with like, oh, I'm going to bake this company and I'm going to go sell it to this one or that one. Um, that's probably a bad idea in my opinion, because so much happens, especially if you need to do the um, readjustment of your business model, which then your unit economics are different than your assumptions. And then you're no longer interesting to whoever it is you were targeting in the first place or someone else is ahead of you. You know, like, so let's say you wanted to build, um, someone said to me once, can we build something you know, that Apple will just buy? I'm like, why don't you just go apply for a job at Apple then? I, I, I go, because the chances that they're actually to go buy it, like you have to be right place, right time with the perfect product that fits a need for them at that exact moment, right? Like, like when, when Google bought Waze and then Apple was out trying to buy maps because their map product was a piece of garbage, right? They were trying to buy map assets. Like, sure, if you happen to be working on a map app, you know, you hit the, you hit the jackpot, right? But like to target that is virtually impossible, right? Um, I even go back and say, if you were the YouTube folks, right? I go, there was this perfect thing where they were projecting into the future. They said, in the future, storage will go down and the ubiquity of mobile phone cameras will go up. And we just have to have enough venture capital to survive and someone will want to buy us, you know, or we'll be able to IPO because we'll run ads, you know, whenever that happens. But they didn't know when it was going to happen and they just figured they can raise enough venture capital between the point they founded the company and they could. I, I doubt they targeted Google who eventually bought them. They were just like, Let me go, let's just go build a business that's going to be best in class and the first one to really do this well. Now, with that all said, um, it's not really about networking, right? It's it's typically, you know, so two, three of the exits that I've been involved with as a, um, a founder were initialized, or initialized may not be the right word, but the su strong suggestion uh, was by our VCs, right? Or our investor class, right? Um, and then on one of them, I mean, I even remember in a board meeting saying to the VC, well, if you want the company sold so bad, you bring a buyer to the table. I'm not going to waste my time looking for it. And, you know, ironically, they did. And they actually brought a pretty good one. So everyone was kind of happy. Um, but, you know, you, you have to run your business. You really can't think about selling it. Um, then back to the thing, if you're at a point where you no longer can do the business, then you're probably coming in from a position of weakness, right? Um, as opposed to a position of strength. If you're at a position of strength, people just, they will come to you. You don't have to do any networking. Like, I'm going to say, I'm going to make a bold prediction that, you know, how Airbnb is, is pretty popular these days, as at least the date we're recording. Um, went through a rough patch in COVID, but they've seemed to recover nicely, uh, about to go public. And Airbnb is about 12 years old. So I'm going to say about nine years ago, I guarantee you they had tons of inbound for M&A, 
right? Because they built an amazing business like like YouTube that was still pretty early in what it did and best in class and things like that, right? So, so as long as you build something that's best in class, you'll get the attention of somebody, whether it's the media, whether it's investment bankers, and then that inbound just comes in. Then it's up to you to make the right decisions for your business. Yeah, I I don't know who it was again, but I recently saw a tweet from an in, from a VC investor saying something like, "In the ten years that I've been investing, I've never invested in a company that has an exit slide." That's a good point. Um, you know, now that in my kind of later stage of the career, I'm, I'm I am doing professional investing. I, I don't think we've even had the conversation with any of the founders, like in the pitch, definitely not in the slides. Yeah, so like I haven't seen, and I I mean I was just joking with somebody the other day. I mean I look at hundreds of decks a year, right? I mean, seriously, right? It's, it's, it's the job. That's, it's, it's what you got to do. You got to filter through lots and lots of them. And I, I don't, I think you're right. I don't think I've seen on any of them, you know, maybe like not even single digits, like, you know, 0.00 X percent might have like some kind of exit slide, right? The only time you see that is if you're doing a later stage liquidity round, like you're buying secondary shares, right? That's what I mean by a liquidity round. Or if you're doing, you know, once in a while, like um, a big famous name company might come across our desk and we'll have the opportunity to do an SPV, right? A special purpose vehicle, which is like a side investment. And those will have kind of a return profile based upon a potential IPO in X number of years. But even those, so I mean, that, when, I'm, when I say that, I'm, I'm saying it's like companies like an Airbnb, like, you know, they know they're going to go public in the next 12 to 24 months, and, but they may do one last round. Um, those might have an exit slide because the return profile is going to be a lot different, right? The return profile at your, you know, multi-billion dollar valuation is going to be measured in percentages as opposed to multiples, right? I actually recently came one across, but that was a deck to apply for a program. And that program, obviously, the people who were the gatekeepers of that program wanted to see every company put in a kind of like a exit slide in what is your end goal. So that's, yeah, that shows more about the program itself and, and about the people who are running it. But um, there's still people out there. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm going to interrupt you for a second saying it, that's not necessarily the worst possible thing in the world. Meaning, um, too many times I see deals now that I look at it and I'm like, I, I scratch my head. I'm like, why is that evaluation the way it is? Or why is that company, more importantly, it's more like this, why is that company getting venture capital? So when a company, so let's let's look at the D to C model, right? The direct to consumer, right? So you are um, Casper, and the unit economics are horrible, right? Because you're you're competing. Casper, just for the non-US oh, okay. people, Casper is a mattress online mattress selling company that you can order your mattress at home. It's being delivered, etc. Yes, sorry about that. Um, I thought everyone knew Casper. Um, <laughs> you're so US centric. Oh, that, yeah, I know you believe that. Um, so you look at some of these companies, and they are nice businesses. But when they're all, when it's all said and done, it's not necessarily um, something that's going to grow from the infinite scale of software because software gives you very low to zero marginal costs. Where at Casper, this mattress company that Jeffrey described for you, you still have to buy another mattress and ship it to a customer, <laughs> right? You can get efficiencies through software and you can get, um, you know, even amazing margins compared to the brick and mortar stores compared, you know, like by running online marketing campaigns, which turns out, by the way, are are actually not as good margins as some of the stores because the, you know, all the copycat imitators because all these mattresses are being drop shipped. But that's a whole separate conversation. Um, 
and, and, and I can go on and on about, you know, half a dozen other styles of businesses that honestly have no, in my opinion, no, no reason to go take venture capital. But since there's so much VC money out there, VCs seem to fund a lot of these things. So I do feel like at some point, I know it's like illegal or, you know, stupid or whatever, whatever word you want to use to, to actually think about the exit. I, I do, I do ask this question, like at, at Fresco, you know, I, I asked just last night, we had our kind of like our company call and one of the companies that's on the docket that we're talking to, I asked my partners, I'm like, just how big is this market? I, I go, you know, before, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, sometimes if you can be one of maybe two or three top players in a small market and then not have a lot of capital requirements, you know, you could actually have a better exit than if you invested in Uber, right? Because Uber has to take so much money to compete at a global scale on a consumer-driven right business. So I, I do think it is worth thinking about that. And I think investors should game that on their, you know, run a model on their own. But I do think founders should think about it because it does affect, in my opinion, your use of proceeds, right? You know, the capital that you're going to raise and your capital requirements. If you are because um, taking venture capital is not free. You know, going back to my first story with Zagat, I, I I looked at the one of the investors, Vinod Kosla, and I said, "Well, what happens? You know, do we have to give the money back? You know, if we fail?" You know, he laughed. Um, I might be the only person who made Vinod Kosla laugh, but um, I made him cry later. That's a different story. Um, but ultimately, is um, you know, when you're taking venture capital, you, you're you're setting a clock. There's an expectation of a payback and a payback at a at a higher rate which means there has to be some kind of liquidity event, right? There has to be either an IPO or, or a sale. And I look at the, the inability of a lot of these direct-to-consumer companies to have an IPO, right? I mean, if you just look at the, sha the Shave Club ones, right? And, you know, if you can look those up um, on your spare time, I think they're called Dollar Shave Club. And the other one was Harry's. Like, it's very difficult for the, for the large consumer companies to acquire these direct-to-consumers with companies without facing antitrust regulation in Europe and in the United States. So that leaves your limits, that, that limits your exit potential. Like if an IPO is too difficult as the Caspers of the world have proven and the Fresh Director, or not Fresh Direct, what's it called? Um, Hello Fresh, right? you know, all the food delivery ones in the West. Uh, I think there's a German company, right? That they're, you know, these stocks are about to be delisted. They're doing so poorly. Um, so if your IPO prospects are, are very thin, and if your M&A prospects are thin, you have to really consider your your ability to kind of attract venture capital, right? Because then you're going to have a very difficult time having an exit. So I agree with you, Jeffrey, like you really shouldn't have this slide and nor should accelerators be teaching that. But what they should be teaching is, you know, think through pretty strongly about what the market looks like, how big that market is and what your potential for liquidity is because it affects on the instruments you might use to raise capital. Because you can raise money as debt and structure with dividend. I mean, there's all these other creative ways you can raise capital. You can go down the private equity route. I mean, there's all these tons of ways you can do Coming back to your, your own personal experience at that point, did you ever fought or set up a company by yourself? You founded multiple companies uh, with some kind of like exit strategy in mind or were they all uh, just, hey, there, here's the itch. I, I want to scratch that. I've never had it with an exit strategy in mind. Um, however, I definitely had the idea. I said, well, I never, I never started a company to say, well, I just want to have a job. Like, meaning is every company was definitely one where I said long term, you know, there should be some kind of liquidity on this because each one of those I started with little to no salary. Um, some of them I put my own money in, you know, and my friends, especially I was living in New York City in the 90s and then the early 2000s, you know, like my friends are making all this money on Wall Street. Like I could have just went and got a job, right? So 
Um, I definitely had the notion that, yes, I would like to maybe have some type of exit at some point, um, but never kind of even thought about it, right? You know, so all, 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 the, all the five companies that I've been in never really put any thought into what an exit would be or never put any thought into um, just you know, when or where or why or how or any of that. Just just knowing that it was possible was good enough in that respect. Looking at yourself like you're a technical founder, technical co-founder, what makes you stand out? Because quite often what you see is that technical founders have a challenge building a startup, especially when it comes to the business side of it. What makes you stand out compared to other technical founders that you see out there? And what's the difference between you and them. Oh, they're probably better than me, but that's a different story. Um, I think that's a hard one because I, I, I would say that what, what I focused on was in the very beginning, you know, kind of like, let me, let me go build the tech team. But I always wanted to understand and integrate properly with the business, right? Because I, I think maybe just that year of freelancing and maybe that year on Wall Street kind of ingrained in my mind that tech can't exist in a vacuum. I mean, I, I used to joke like when I, you know, behind closed doors at tech events, I would always joke when I was speaking at a conference or something, I would say, um, who thinks, you know, I'd ask the audience, like, you know, who thinks this job would be great if there were no users? <laughs> you know, just write code all day and everyone raises their hand. Oh yeah, those pesky users, right? But at the end of the day, the users pay our salary. And I was, I became keenly aware of that during that year of freelancing. And I think that that carried over pretty well into my CTO co-founder role. So I, maybe the thing that um, you know might might be a little bit of a differentiator was that I always had really strong co-founders that were non-technical. And in the early days, there was maybe a little bit of a like siloing effect. Um, but as I got um, a little older and got into the you know deeper into the startups, you know, by the time of my third or my fourth startup, um, I actually had more experience than some of the business co-founders that, that, that I had, and I didn't realize it. And it wasn't until maybe like startup number three, where I'm like working on pricing. Like I, I remember sitting in a room and coming back to my team and they're like, well, what were you talking about all day? Like, are you, are we have more, because, you know, usually the CTO disappears with the CEO and the head of sales and comes out of a room after eight hours, the tech team freaks out. They're like, oh my God, what did you promise them? What are we, what are we doing? Oh, I, we didn't talk anything tech. I go, we were actually working on a marketing campaign and the pricing of this product. And they're like, huh? Right. And I, you know, it, it was, that was actually at that point when the team had this expectation that I was in there building systems behind their back, right? Um, that I realized, oh, I gained all this experience over the years, um, just kind of through osmosis, to be honest. Uh, working at a startup is like, is like kind of getting an MBA in that respect. Um, so yeah, I think that that probably was it. Actually, speaking of MBA, I actually went and did get one, um, partly because I didn't, I, I, because to take this one step further is I actually found that more of an asset. And I actually started thinking all CTOs should actually understand the fundamentals of business because too many CTOs are just like, oh, that's the business side. Um, and I see this at, at Fresco, um, you know, where, where I'm working right now and we're investing in companies, you know, there's a fair amount of companies where like, I, I've never met the CTO <laughs> because like they don't want to talk to the investors. And there's lots of companies where it's not the case and those tend to be the better performing ones. Um, but there's still a handful of them that have that traditional siloing, which isn't healthy to be completely honest. And I, I mean, I've mentioned it to them, but there's only so much I can do in that respect. And, you know, so after, after doing this a few times, I said, well, let me legitimize it. I go, I'll go get an MBA um, because then, you know, I won't be kind of closed out of meetings with my, you know, originally I thought like I'd get an MBA because I just didn't want the marketing people to lie to me if I ever like, you know, 
you know, because like, because tech people do that all the time. Well, I need to do configure the flux capacitor, and that's going to take six weeks, right? Um, and, and all you techies know, there's no such thing as a flux capacitor. It's a Star Trek thing, right? I mean, maybe there is just in 2024 or 2023 or something like that, or 20, 24th century, I mean. Um, but, you know, in essence, I don't want the marketing people to kind of tell me about their flux capacitor, right? So I figured, okay, if I can learn about like all the, the, the jargon and, you know, all how things are done and accounting and all that kind of stuff, like I could talk about unit costs and unit economics just as much as they can. Um, but that was kind of the final stage of the evolution, right? So it started just by osmosis, right? Just, just having an interest from those years as a, um, as a freelancer. And then eventually just, um, the skills just started building. I mean, how can you not, you're working at a startup, like, you know, there's eight people in your startup and you have a million dollars in the bank and every, and then every month it's a little less, you know, and you kind of have to learn about business, I think. Okay. Are there any mistakes that you keep on making and never learn from? Yeah, I think there's definitely one. Um, and it, it, it's, it's related to the premature scaling. Um, Basically, what I see happen at a pattern in my companies, as well as um, companies, you know, we at Fresco, I've seen this happen, is there is this notion that you need to go out and hire, and, you know, when you hit a certain point, you need to go out and hire, quote, the experts, right? So, I, and I, I was guilty of this. This was in startup number five. You would think I would have learned. This is like 10 years after the MBA even, right? I, it was a developer tools company. So those of you who know me know who I'm talking about. So they're probably listening. So they might come out and kill me. But um, ironically, this was a meeting in Hong Kong because I, I made them, I was living in Hong Kong. I made them all come to Hong Kong. And I kind of pounded on the table because they were promoting somebody who, uh, to the head of marketing. And um, I pounded on the table. I said, can we just hire someone in marketing that like today on LinkedIn, it says VP of marketing, like they actually know how to do marketing, right? Like, you know, I was looking for the legitimacy of someone who's been doing it for 20 years at like Nike, like someplace that does really good marketing. And the reality is those people never work well at a startup. You kind of need the people who don't know what they're doing. Um, I joke, the person who like sucks the least at something gets to go do it at a startup. And I actually think that should be the norm. There is this happy, blissful universe when, when that's how it happens and that's how it transpires. And I, I feel like I, I've, I was guilty of that. It was really at that last startup where we, we grew pretty big. I mean, we were, we were pushing a hundred million in revenue by the time the company was over, maybe not quite that high, but pretty close. And, you know, so we were, we were big and mature. It wasn't like we were like rinky dink four guys at a Starbucks kind of a thing anymore. And, um, I felt like when we got to that level, we needed to go bring in, quote, the experts. And we brought in like a CMO and a CFO. A CFO actually does, did make sense at that stage. But like that CMO came in. He's a great guy. I still talk to him. But he was the wrong guy. Like, you know, he, you know, he just he was better working at like some big tech company. Like he should just go run marketing campaigns for Microsoft right? because that's the, the playbook. Right. So that was a mistake that I've probably made in every single one of those companies, right? So it, it goes hand in hand with, it's not the same as premature scaling. It, it, if you're prematurely scaling, you're definitely doing that. Um, but, at this, but at the same time, you, even if you solved your premature scaling problem, because later in my startup career, I stopped prematurely scaling, but I then started quote, hiring the experts. And luckily some of the other startups I did didn't have the money to hire the experts. <laughs> um, but you know, you could be tempted. You could be tempted with venture capital or revenues to go do that. So this is a little bit like the Peter Principle. You know the Peter Principle? No, enlighten me. Google it. You will. Uh, you will see uh, a lot of reference there. I like that. I go okay. on a podcast. I have homework. <laughs> What's an often given advice that you don't agree with when it comes to startups? 
Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I don't know, to be honest. I, I do think that there's a lot of folks that are getting advice out there and the vice varies. I would say the thing I disagree with is that the mentors or the investors or even the board knows what they're doing. Like meaning is no one knows your business better than you, right? So so for example, I, um, you know, at, at Fresco, we invest in a couple different categories and one of them is digital health. And up until maybe two years ago, I didn't know anything about digital health, right? Um, so we started investing in the companies and now I find myself on the board and these companies asking me for my advice and I'm, you know, giving them the, from the perspective of my career or, or my just mentality. And I, I do think that founders, so this is a hard one because founders that ask for advice and take advice are the best founders, right? As opposed to founders that just go do whatever it is they feel like they should be doing. But at the same time, what what they really should do is is not think that someone else has all those answers. What they can do is just give you a story from their experience or advice from their experience and then synthesize that for their business, right? So so for example, so let's say Jeffrey, you and I have spent the last 20 years working on, I don't know what, um, hand sanitizer. That's pretty popular these days. And we decided to go start a hand sanitizer startup. And we take investment from Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, and, and everyone else. And, and Mark Andreessen sits on our board and we're like, Mark, tell us everything we need to know. And we, we take diligent notes about being wartime CEOs and blitz scaling and this, that, and the other, blah, 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 right? The, pro the really thing is, is, is all those people don't know jack about hand sanitizer. Right? They don't know the unit economics. They don't know the this, the that, the chemistry. I mean, and we are the subject matter experts. So, like, my advice to the founders that are listening is, you're the expert in your startup. If you call, if you popped onto the show and asked Jeffrey and I for advice, and we gave it to you, you'd understand that we would give it to you from the perspective of our background and our educations, and that's good. And we may give you some awesome advice, and we may give you slightly conflicting advice. And that's okay because that's a diversity of opinion, right? So then what your job is to do is to understand that we have our biases and our pros and cons of the advice that we give you and synthesize that, you know, for what's best for your business, right? So I think as opposed to any one piece of advice people get, because I disagree with most of probably the advice that, you know, <laughs> founders get these days, um, I would say it's more that. It's actually, you're the, you're the expert in your business. Um, you know, go ahead and get lots of feedback, but at the same time, synthesize that feedback, right? You know, so if you get five different people's point of view, don't necessarily think that Jeffrey was right and Steven was wrong. It's more like, well, if I synthesize what Jeffrey and Steve said, I could actually do this and that would probably be better because that's what diversity means. Diversity doesn't mean like I hire person A and then I hire someone who's diverse as person B and we all think the same. It's more like, I hire person A and they think and they, they come up with solution A. I hire person B, which comes from a radically different environment, and they come up with solution B. And the reality is together they would actually come up with solution C, which they never would have came up with on their own. And that's the advice that I think founders should go for. And what would be the most valuable advice that's ever given to you? Startup wise, personal wise. What's something that still you're trying to also give to others that you really say, hey, this is part of my mantra now? Yeah, and I can I can say probably unequivocally that I've already said it on the, on the podcast because I, I always repeat it, which is my old CFO said to me, he goes, go build a sustainable business, right? Everything else will take care of itself, right? So if you actually go out there and focus on, don't focus on going to a conference, don't focus on getting a TechCrunch article, don't focus on the exit, don't focus on the investors, just focus on building a sustainable business. You do that, 
um, all the other stuff that you really want um, starts to kind of work itself out. Yeah, something similar like the listeners will know that that I always end this podcast with go out and build something meaningful. So that's kind of similar. Um, what's something that's not a secret, but most people don't know about you? I know you're quite open, but... So it's not a secret, but people don't know. Oh, that's a good question. Um, maybe something people don't know. I mean, I guess if you really are bored and scroll down on LinkedIn, you can figure it out. But I actually have a degree. I have a couple degrees, but I have two undergraduate degrees, a Bachelor of Science in Political Science and a Bachelor of Arts in History. And I think maybe because I'm known as a techie and I'm known as a tech entrepreneur and now a tech investor, you know, people think I'm like a master's in computer science or this, that, the other thing. And I was actually self-taught, which doesn't sound as exciting as it is. I mean, like in, in New York at the time, it was very easy to become self-taught. But um, ultimately is my, I, I look at, you know, by having that social science, liberal arts background, I kind of look at the world through that lens, which becomes very interesting today um, in these, in these interesting times. And I think that People don't expect that from technical people, right? They don't expect you to kind of go out there and talk about, um, you know, comparing COVID spread, you know, to, you know, Justinian's plague in Constantinople, which killed a third, you know, of the, uh, actually two thirds, what am I talking about? Two, thir two thirds of the people I came in contact with, or, you know, lo looking at all the things that, you know, history and political science come in, but also bringing that into, I, I noticed that then I bring that into my um, work life. Like I had an argument the other day with one of my partners about like Airtable. I said, Airtable is... Is Google Sheets with type type form, right? And it reminds me of Microsoft Access, you know, no code, right? And you know, and you know, maybe this makes me close-minded, and I could be wrong, but I look at the history of the technology industry and I apply that then to today and say, what's what parallels can I draw? And I look at the tools that were like Airtable 20, 30 years ago, or even 15, 10 years ago, and I see how they evolved by then trying to become sort of developer tools and then the developers don't want to use them right? you know so like those type of things and um I, and i think like that background in history you know brings that perspective and it's probably something folks don't know about me for better or for worse um hopefully for better <laughs> thank you very much i want to thank you for your valuable insights and sharing of your lessons learned in startups thanks for having me for the listeners although the rating system and podcast is hideous if you like this Mea Culpa series, you can rate this podcast with five stars as a motivation for the makers. Thanks Mizuo Crowdbrain in Hong Kong for being the venue sponsor for this episode. And thanks to Kopi Ventures for making this series possible. If you have any suggestions in guests, let us know. Contact details are in the footnotes. This is Jeffrey Brewer. Go out and build something meaningful.